Hi, my name is Diana. The Old Testament reading is found in Genesis 1, 31 through verse, chapter 2, verse 3, and verses 15 and 18 from the English Standard Version. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Jill. The New Testament reading is found in Acts 2, 42 through 45. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Evan. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come and be the church and worship you. We ask now, be glorified in us, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of our hearts in this time, and opening up your word would be pleasing to you, and that you would guide us in all life, in all righteousness, and all truth, into freedom, to your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. 
my name is Evan, if you don't know, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, a little bit more context for the guy that you're seeing up here the rest of the time. His name is Jay, uh, and if you knew Pastor Joey, uh, what Joey did over the volunteer teams and overseeing those and kind of city partnerships and city serving, uh, Jay is taking on all of those responsibilities. So he will soon be Pastor Jay because he's in his, his pastoral licensing um, program right now. So once that is complete in a couple of months, we'll pray and commission him into the pastorship. Um, he's also my brother-in-law, so that it's working out pretty good. And, and the best in-law uh, co-working situation I think I've ever been a part of, which is great. I love him. Um, and for some of you, uh, he's also a Seahawks fan. Wow, wow. There's some friendly territory for you here. You're good to go. Okay. Uh, we are in week two of a series uh, that we're calling Grow, and it's, it's piggybacking off of the, uh, the series that we were doing, what we call the Easter Tide season. So Easter being seven Sundays long of a celebration. And that whole series was talking about the, living the resurrected life. So basically, now that Jesus has come and is resurrected, how do we then live? And, and, it, and a big part, it was, uh, it was as the church. This series specifically, we're going to spend uh, June and July on, and we're looking through uh, kind of the book of Acts, especially planting Acts 2.42, and the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to, com- uh, to fellowship uh, or community uh, and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so there's, there's some, some texts in there, and we're going to take each of those words one by one and look at how did the church that Jesus established, he, he was resurrected, he taught for a period of time, he ascended, and he sent at Pentecost, you see the establishment of that church in the first couple of chapters of Acts, how then did they grow together? In all things, we as the church are to grow up together into Christ who is the head. How does that happen? What does that require? And so this series called Grow will spend the next couple of weeks in uh, looking at that. So um, within any series, uh, if you ever hear me preach, most of the time you're going to hear me go back to Genesis because that's where it all starts in the best of ways, and that's where it all went wrong, right? Like, hey, this is great. Oh, yeah, chapter three didn't go so well. What's going to happen now? So, so we have to look at that. So this week, um, last week, Glenn talked through uh, within um, the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and he connected that to the creed and saying, these are the statements, this is the text canon, uh, this, is, this is our faith that we are believing in, and this is the way and the, the fellowship that we're devoting ourselves to. Now we're looking at and to the fellowship, and that fellowship, the Greek word, is koinonia, and uh, it's, it's something that we've become somewhat familiar with, um, as far as, hey, you should be in fellowship, you should be in fellowship with God, you should be in fellowship with one another. Uh, and it's actually somewhat of a popularized word. Uh, my, my father-in-law actually leads a home Bible study that they call Koinonia Fellowship, which when you translate it is Fellowship Fellowship. Um, so, nailed it. And... <laughs> And so it's something that probably that Greek word, we're not familiar with a lot of Greek words, but Koinonia, you might have heard before. And so we're going to look today at what is God's design for us as humanity as a whole, and as his church to be in fellowship with him, with one another, and then the mission that comes along with that. So I was talking uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, just jumping in here to going back to Genesis, with uh, a guy in the congregation, his name is Joel Roberts, and he, uh, we're, we, he just graduated Denver Seminary. 
seminary last fall. He's a counselor in town with Mayfield Counseling. And we just love, there's Jason gets to, Jason and Glenn get together and they nerd out in theology and I can kind of hang with them. I love getting together with Joel because we nerd out on like psychology and personality disorders and all that stuff. And we're like, oh, this is so great. I just love talking to you. So, so we were hanging out and we were talking about the idea of fellowship and we were looking uh, back in Genesis because that really is, there, there's a premise uh, for the way that God designed us as humanity that is revealed in our creation and then what is wrong and what's going on is revealed in the text of the fall. And so if you look at Genesis, and it was our, uh, our Old Testament reading this morning, what you see is a design that God has put in us to be in community, to be in fellowship, the koinonia. And this is the way that we're designed. And what happens is you see God creating in Genesis 1. And there's six days of creation. And on every day, whatever it is that he created, he, he observes and he reflects upon and he calls it good. So he creates the, the heavens and the earth. And he, and he saw and he said it was good. And he creates the expanse and the land and the sea, and it was good. And the light and the darkness, and it was good. And then he fills it, and he starts designing the world and putting it in order and, and piecing it all together in its functions. And, and he puts plants and animals and then finally man. And he looks at all of it, and every single day he observes and reflects upon the work of his hands, and he says, it is good. Uh, and, and this is seen in recap in Genesis one thirty one. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So what you see in that, in that beginning chapter in chapter one of Genesis, and we have to read the Bible as story. So when the, the idea is being repeated that he created and it's good and he created and it's good, we, should, we, we see a pattern and it's good and it's good. And, and we're reading into it a narrative of the reflection of the creator God in the creation, the way that he's making it, he is making it good and it is innately reflecting the good creator, the good God that he is. So when in chapter two, we hear the first thing that is not good, it should jar our attention a little bit. Because it's good, it's good, it's good, it's not good, and it should kind of shake us a little and go, what, whoa, what's, what is not good? Because what hasn't happened yet at this point in chapter two is the fall. There's not been rebellion, there's not been the sin of Adam and Eve, they have not eaten the fruit of which they were not supposed to. And so before all of that in the fall of man, we're seeing God speak into a situation and say, this is not good. And this is something Joel was walking me through, and I just loved it. Then the Lord God, chapter 2, verse 18, said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So, so man is created, and he is put to work, and he is given mission, and God is saying everything is created. It's good, it's good, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good. And then all of a sudden, we're jarred by this, and it's not good that man is alone. And so from the very beginning, the way that God fashions us, the innate nature of humanity is recognized to say, we are created to be in community and in fellowship with one another and with God. This is the observation that we get from these couple of chapters of Genesis. It's good, it's good, it's good. Everything he's doing is good. It's not good that he's alone. I've given him mission. He's in fellowship with me. There's fellowship of God and man at that point. But him alone, this is not good. I'm going to make him a help 
proper fit for him. And we use this text a lot of times for uh, when we're talking through marriage and stuff. Oh, yeah, great. They're two and they become one. But at the essence of it, there is an isolation and a loneliness of, of man in this context that we're saying he is created, he is in relationship with God, he's in fellowship with God, but it is still not good that he is alone. So the result of that is saying, I'm going to make him another, a helper fit for him. And then we see woman come into the picture. And so we just need to recognize from the very beginning that God, the way that he has designed you, every single one of us in this room, we are designed to be in fellowship, the koinonia, to be in fellowship with God and with one another. So there's, um, there's something that happens Though, and we, we, uh, we really do see, because the fall shifts everything, and the result, the result of when we disobey or disregard the created design is death and dysfunction start creeping in. Because if God fashions it in a certain order, and then we, we buck that system or we disobey, then death and disorder start creeping into the system. So if you don't think this is too, too strong of saying, like, hey, if you do not stay in fellowship, you're going to die— what happens is Adam and Eve, when they, when they buck the system, the created order of, of pure fellowship with God, he says, if you do it, if you disobey me, you will surely die. And they're cast out of the garden. And there's this brokenness or this fracturing within the fellowship of them and God that actually for the first time brings death into the world. If you want to say relationally, the, the, after the fall of chapter three, chapter four is where we see the story of Cain and Abel. And so we see with God, there's a fracture and dysfunction and death enter. And also with one another, these brothers end up, uh, Cain murders Abel. And there is this relational fracture that happens because of this disjointing, right? So we're built to be in relationship. But when we, when we, when we break it or when we don't do it in the way that God is calling us to, when the dysfunction happens, death can result. Further proof, because if you're like me, you love it when the Bible says something is true and we take it at that face value and you're like, yeah, that's true, because I have faith. And it just kind of tickles your fancy when there's some, you know, researchers and psychologists and, and doctors or whatever who study something and they say, hey, guess what? People get really messed up if they're not in community. And you go, yeah, we've been saying that for like 5,000 years. Like, we, we knew that. But I love the research, too. So I was reading a bunch of articles in preparation for today, um, things from BYU University that have come out, Science Daily, Archives of General Psychology. And here's a list of the effects of social isolation, of not being in community. So if God has designed us to, to be in community with one another, and when we, when we don't, when we resist that natural design that God has put in us, when we resist fellowship, um, what ends up happening in social isolation are these things on the screen. So you can read through those, and if you're like me, I was reading through these various lists that I compiled into this one, um, I was just shocked. General decreased feeling of vitality, loss of energy, Greater likelihood of chronic illness, such as heart disease, cancer, diabetes, increased likelihood of Alzheimer's disease. People, um, this especially affected the elderly generation. People who were elderly and were lonely, like chronic social isolation, were found to be twice as likely to contract Alzheimer's disease than those who were in community with one another. Twice as likely, right? Longer recovery times from sickness, weakened immune systems, regular feelings of loneliness, chronic stress, increased likelihood of depression, decreased level of happiness, satisfaction with life in general, shorter lifespans. People who did not live in community ended up, in these research studies, living shorter and less length of time with less health 
than those who lived in community and in fellowship with, with others, right? So when we're looking at this list, it, all it does is affirm to say God has put in us an order that when we resist that order and that need, that innate human fashioning that God has made us to be, to say live in community with one another, be part of the fellowship, commit yourself to this, then the result is death and dysfunction creeping in. And it's fascinating, because I, I have to say, like, in the studies, if you read them in depth, you can go online, and the, and the research articles are mostly available there. Um, if you go through, it's not like, hey, I'm living by myself in an apartment. Does that mean I'm going to die earlier? Like, <laughs> don't hear me on that. that. There's not like a one-to-one. But basically what they're saying is, when you're not in communion, when you're disconnected, there are chemical reactions that happen in our bodies and our brains when we are in relationship, and just the, the fellowship and, and loving and caring relationships with one another. And it's kind of like this domino effect that when we don't have that or maybe we don't have purpose with friends and we don't feel like we're part of a tribe, then it ends up causing stress or we don't have support systems or we don't feel cared for and that ends up weakening our immune systems and that ends up making us more disposed to to chronic illness and disease. And so there's this whole domino effect that happens. But they're saying the end result of social isolation is that all of these things are true. So, what is it that we're actually called to? What is this design that I keep referring to? It's the fellowship, relationship with God, relationship with one another, and membership in the community. And I, I want to say the first two we've probably heard 10 sermons on. You should be in relationship with God. It's like kind of, kind of core to the whole thing, right? Like that's, that's like the first disobedience thing. But the way that we're fashioned is to also be in relationship with one another. So, if it's with God and one another, sometimes that's where we stop when we come to Koinonia. Acts, so Luke is writing, Dr. Luke is writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, the Acts of the Disciples. And so he's saying in these texts uh, that it's not just that you are supposed to be in fellowship as though in relationship with one another. He goes further to present this idea that fellowship is actually participation. Because the word koinonia, the, the literal definition of it, fellowship, sharing, to share in, to participate, to contribute, communion, association. So it's more than just, I know you. It actually transcends into, and I am participating in your life. I am participating in what is going on, and the tragedies, and the triumphs. I know you, and I am in communion, community with you. So there is a weightiness to us as the church who are called to be on mission, right? So it's not just like, hey, you're saved, and that's all for yourself. It's we are saved into the community of Christ, and our koinonia, our fellowship, is based on Christ and his teachings and his mission. So then our participation is in a shared mission based on Christ with one another. And it's for one another and then for the world. So we have to understand that when we're being called to community, it is so much weightier than just being in relationship with. Because how many Facebook friends do you have? Like a thousand or or 500? I don't know. I don't know. However many you have. How many of them are you actually participating in their lives? Right? Not just I know them or they're a family member, but I don't really talk to them. Because the idea of koinonia, of the fellowship that we are being called to is I know them and I am participating. I am in community with and participating in agreement with what is going on in their life and the mission of it. So, so we have to understand that there is, there is that gravity to it. Um, if you want some scriptural understanding of where all these come from, 
First John, you guys love John? He's like so ushy-gushy-mushy, and I love him to death because of it. He's so relational, and that's how I'm built. Um, Paul comes with all of his logic, and John comes with all of his emotions, and I just, it's, I love soaking in it. So, First John uh, chapter 1, verse, starting in verse 6. If we say we have fellowship with him, God, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Uh, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, this is chapter four now, he is a liar, for he does not love his brother whom he has seen. He cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And John in his, uh, the first epistle of John, gives us this huge context of fellowship. Acts, Luke, this uh, chapter 242 is the only time that Luke uses the word koinonia. John, on the other hand, uses it just all the time. He just peppers it into everything. Your lives are about koinonia, koinonia with God and koinonia with one another. And you can't claim fellowship with God unless you have fellowship with one another. They are divinely connected. And so there is this basis of our relationships, just the way we are fashioned in Genesis is with God and with one another. Acts 4.32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of those things that belonged to him was his own. They had everything in common. And Acts 4.32 and 2.42, so don't get confused there, but both of those little paragraphs are these summary paragraphs because Jesus establishes the church and he ascends and he, uh, he, he, he's gone and he sends his spirit the day of Pentecost and many come and the church is established and then they do the summary statement. And those who are now part of this new fellowship, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to the koinonia with one another. And he's summarizing. And this then is how they lived in community with one another. The same thing happens in Acts 4.32, where he's saying all of these things, they were, they were the one, they were united in heart and soul, and anything was counted not as their own, but they shared it with everyone. Because the, the overflow of their devotion to one another, the koinonia with one another was, and guess what? This isn't mine, this is now ours. Mi casa es su casa, brothers and sisters. So all of it, come on, let's do this together. If you have need, I am participating in your need, and I'm going to bring from what I have to give to you. Out of what I have overflowing, because I know it's from God, my participation, my koinonia in life and community together with you in the gospel means that everything I have counts as yours and it's all of ours and it's shared. So we see these statements overflowing. And this is, where, this, this is just how it sets up. So our fellowship, our koinonia is with God, relationship with him, relationship with one another. And it's a shared mission, a communal mission for us as the church, because that is the central thing, the force that brings us together within this koinonia. So, what are the effects of koinonia? If this is what we're called to, and if uh, some of those studies that I mentioned earlier, if we, don't, if we have socialization, if we're not part of it, they kind of break down our health and all that stuff, what are the positive effects of koinonia? Now, I want you to take a moment right now and think in your mind of like one or two things of like, when I'm in community, this is the benefit or this is the positive thing about it. Okay, you got it? I want you to share it with your neighbor real quick. Like, hey, this, ready to go. Yep, yep, I agree. All right, I'm going to bring it back in. You guys did great in my little social experiment. Thank you so much. Um, All of that was just to say... 
There are 400 of us in this room, and I cannot possibly list all of the benefits of koinonia in one sermon. Can I get an amen from that? There is just, it is just too many to list. So I came up with a few. Encouragement, strength, perspective, wisdom, help, protection, belonging, forgiveness, provision. And that took me about 20 seconds last night to come up with. Like going, there are just so many. There are so many benefits. But there's a few that I do want to focus on. Uh, and, and one, I want to use an example. Um, who in here is a camper? They love camping. All right. <laughs> I love camping. I, 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 well, okay. I, I'm going I'm I'm to put an asterisk by that. I love camping, and now I have a two-year-old son. So I love camping, and it takes a lot more preparatory work. And you just buckle up for like, even if I wasn't going to sleep before, I'm probably not going to sleep even less now. Okay. So camping, campfire, right? Those things are synonymous with one another. Do you guys go for the teepee pattern or the log cabin pattern with your logs? I see a teepee. I, I am a personally a log fa- cabin fan. Like, I just think it burns better. But I, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, whoever, wherever you learned it from, it's great. I was talking to a guy in, in the congregation. His name is Ben Woody, uh, and he's a retired fighter fire. Uh, we call him Papa Ben because he's a very fatherly figure uh, in my wife and I's life. And there, I was just asking him, I'm like, okay, Ben, I'm preaching on Sunday. I love this idea of fire and community and being in proximity with one another. Can you explain to me some of the elements of fire uh, and how they work? And then he started to give me about, he's like, do you have five minutes? And then like rattled off this long technical firefighter list of stuff. And I was just like, okay, I, that's too smart for me. So uh, thank you, firefighters, for all that you do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to simplify it a little bit here because there's two words that came out of what he was saying that I really just, they, they struck a chord with what I'm trying to get at today. And he said, there's, when, when fire logs or any fuel for fire is placed in close proximity together, it has reflective and protective attributes to it. Reflective and protective attributes. One reflective, when you put those logs in close proximity, which is why I think the log cabin works better, when you put them in proximity together like that, when they are close enough, what ends up happening is the heat, which creates the fire, ends up radiating off of each other. So that fire is actually spurred on and it's encouraged to continue to burn. This is very similar to the way that when we are in close community with one another, when we're sharing in fellowship with one another, when we are in that place, all of those things that you just mentioned to your neighbor, they are encouraged in your life to keep going. Keep the faith. Keep encouraging one another. When somebody's weak, help them and be strong for them. When somebody's mourning, mourn with them. When somebody's rejoicing, rejoice with them. And our closeness and proximity, like those campfire logs, radiate, they reflect the heat of God to mutual encouragement in the faith. And when we are separate, if you, you guys know, if you take that log out, if you want to make the fire die, you separate the logs from one another. You kind of kick them to the side so that that heat isn't radiating amongst them anymore. It is so similar to the way that our faith works. When we are in close proximity with one another, there is the mutual encouragement for the presence of God, and let's call that the fire, to continue to burn in our lives, to continue to be encouraged to burn in our hearts. But when we separate proximity with one another, when we are distant, that fire burns low because God has created us to be in community, and that is the result of it. Reflective and protective. The other part of it, he said, is basically when the logs are like that, they, on the outside of them, they, they protect against the other elements that would snuff that fire out. 
And so when we are in community, not only are we reflecting, encouraging one another, but we're also protecting. We're protecting each other from the works of the enemy. We're protecting each other from discouragement, from, from quitting, from whatever it might be, and saying, no, you bad stuff, keep out. We're going to keep the faith, and you good things, we're going to reflect it to one another. When we are in community, the presence of God burns more brightly and strongly and is sustained amongst us. And when we lose community or we are distant, that light can burn dim and snuff out. The other thing that I want to say that community causes is actually healing. Um, There's a guy named Johan Hari, who's a British researcher, and he did a TED Talk a couple years ago um, on the the war on drugs. Um, If you guys, uh, if you're a TED Talk junkie, you've probably seen this. It it went pretty viral. Um, and, And his whole premise is that the opposite of addiction, he's looking, at, he's looking at different countries around the world, and he spent three years researching what has actually helped people kick addiction. What has actually helped them not remain in addictive behaviors. Um, and, and I'm just going to read you part of what he found. Human beings have a natural and innate need to bond. And when we're happy and healthy, we bond and connect with each other. But if you can't do that because you're traumatized or isolated or beaten down by life, you will bond with something that will give you some sense of relief. Now that might be gambling, pornography, cocaine, substance abuse, but you will bond and connect with something because that's our nature. That's what we want as human beings. And as addicts rediscovered bonds and relationships with a wider society, they no longer needed to bond to substances. People feel increasingly vulnerable to their addictions these days. Smartphones, shopping, eating. We think we're the most connected society ever because of smartphones and social media. But during a crisis in life, who will be the flesh and blood friends who come and sit with us? We are actually one of the loneliest cultures there has ever been. We talk about individual recovery, but we need to talk more about social recovery. The core of our response to addiction needs to be, you're not alone, we love you. Because the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is, is connection. Because it's not just an absence of, we're taking the substance away. Because he's saying what Genesis has said all along. That we as humanity are created to bond. That's the way he's putting it. To be in fellowship. That's the way the scripture says it. And when we do not have strong fellowship, strong community with one another, then we will find something else to be bonded to. And then the destructive patterns that can lead to death, just like we saw in Genesis, just like we saw from the other research studies, will, be, will start resulting. And he found that the countries with the greatest semblance of recovery wasn't because they were isolating. In the American system, a lot of times what happens, you're an addict, something goes wrong, you're put into jail. What is that? It's isolation from society as a whole. Rather, he saw that when you take, instead of isolation, you put them in community, you find them jobs, you find them places to live with other people, you, 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 pro, uh, you promote programs for the sake of community and connection, then the human bonding replaces the need for whatever substance and addiction that they were experiencing. And we as the church need to recognize that this is our human nature. Our lives will continually be restored and, health and brought back to health and redeemed from whatever it is that we're bonding to that's not godly, that's broken or dysfunctional in the systems of this world that are fallen. We need to be in community because that replaces. It does, it's not just sobriety. It's actually community and connection because it's replacing the bond and that's what God has designed us to bond with is one another. 
So, go and do it. But <laughs> there's a couple of things I want to raise because I, I can say it's all nice and say, hey, God's designed you for this. And look, uh, b- there's tons of beneficial stuff that comes from, from being in community with one another. But there's, there's still a few things that actually keep us from remaining in community with one another. Um, and, and I want to just very plainly call it out. Um, we, if, if we're over here, if there's two people and they're wanting the goal of intimacy... Intimacy isn't easy. Let me just dispel that lie or that hoped or false assumption right now. Intimacy is not easy. And what actually happens is that intimacy increases tension. Your life, if lived intimately with other people, will be lived in more tension and conflict than if you simply stayed at the surface level with everybody else, right? If you need more proof, just start thinking through friendships that are deep or that have lasted a long time, or that maybe didn't last. And what happened was at some point in that friendship, as you moved closer together towards intimacy, the tension within the relationship increased. And you either stayed with it and it strengthened that friendship or that relationship, or you said, I don't really want that. I was actually looking for just a good time instead of true intimacy, which causes tension. Uh, And so I'm out, right? And I I can't only tell you how many friends over the years and decades of life, I, I look back and go, The reason we stopped being friends was because at a certain point, the friendship became so, there's so much tension and disagreement that we bailed instead of remaining together. And now that's not always a bad thing, but we need to understand that intimacy increases tension. Um, Two sub points under that that I want to make. In that intimacy increases tension, relational longevity, which is part of intimacy, brings about conflict, okay? Married Married people in the room, can you holler at me? (laughs) <laughs> this is one of the things I love so much about marriage. Is it because, because it's this, I am bonded, I am committed, I have made covenant with you, then whatever happens, we're still together, okay? That, that is the hope, that is the goal. Um, which means that your relational longevity will bring about conflict. And, and marriage is a great example, but if, if you are, are single in the room or if you just have friends, if, even if you've been married but you're saying, I've had a friend and I've had them for 40 years, assumptively, over those 40 years, you've faced points of conflict where you can either lean into the, the relationship and intimacy or you can say, mm, it's a, there's a bit too much tension there. It's too difficult to remain in that. Uh, and so I think I'm just going to kind of step back a little bit. Um, one of the things that I love uh, most about being married to my wife is um, growing up in my family, um, there, there was tension and conflict, but between my brother and I, it usually ended up with me uh, being sat on on the floor, right? Like, <laughs> he was the bigger brother, and I was the smaller brother, and so I just got beat up. Um, with my parents, they did conflict well, but a lot of times they did it separate from in front of us. So conflict to me wasn't, I didn't have a positive association with it. I, it basically, if conflict happened, I wanted out. Um, and and it's, it pro- my personality probably trends towards that a little bit too. Now, my wife, on the other hand, her family, uh, like a bunch of, uh, you know, rams, would be totally fine just butting heads, and and then something happened, and somebody said something, and then like 30 minutes later, they're like, oh, I love you. And it's like, I don't understand. But what it did for me was it showed me an example uh, of just blatant conflict and intimacy and the longevity of these relationships but a full commitment where love being lost was never at risk. 
They were never at risk. I observed it over and over, and you know what? I still observe it today. They never stop loving each other because there's conflict. They are so committed to one another and that family that they butt heads and they butt heads and they butt heads. And I continued to witness this and be like, you guys, you, you have a lot of conflict, but you never lose love for one another. And as the church, we need to get more comfortable and secure because we need to develop that, that commitment to community. I'm committed to you. You are committed to me because we are in fellowship in Koinonia with God and with one another and we are on mission. And nothing's gonna, nothing's gonna falsify that. Nothing's gonna abandon me from that mission. Which means that when I am in a long-term relationship with you and I have conflict with you, it doesn't mean we're bailing from the, the relationship. I'm not scared of that. I'm growing stronger. My, thin, I'm getting, my dad always said, thick-skinned and soft heart. Like I'm thickening up to be able to face conflict because we've been in a relationship a long time. Uh, the other thing that happens um, under intimacy increasing tension is relational intimacy means that we share in each other's brokenness. If I am participating in your life and in intimacy increases tension, then the more that I get to know you, the more that I'm going to see the brokenness that you carry around. And all of us carry brokenness. Let us not lie to ourselves. We all have some story, some history, something that was done to us or something that we did or didn't do or just the fallen state of humanity. We have grief, we have sorrow, we have wounds, we have scars, we have sores, we have blemishes, whatever it is, we carry brokenness. And if I'm really gonna be committed to you and intimacy and relationship and fellowship, the koinonia within this faith, then I'm gonna see that. And it's not always pleasant, but... What God is calling us to is to say, I am so committed to you that when I first met you, it was all fun and games. And I know you a little bit more, and I'm kind of like, eh, you're still pretty cool, and I know you a little bit more, and it's kind of like, wow, oh, man. The amazing stuff is amazing, and the not amazing stuff, I just, I accept you as you are. Um, Martha Cole, who's on our staff here, um, I'm I'm a generally likable guy. Uh, It's... It's something I've developed over the years, um, an ability to be liked. Uh, but there's, there's definite facets of my personality that, uh, for instance, like there's these guest cards that you, you all fill out sometimes. <laughs> and every now and then Martha's not here. And so they get handed to me. And my first thought of whoever's handing it to me is like, forgive them, Lord. They know not what they do. Because these are going to go into my backpack. And my personality flaw of little details and following through with that is going to come out. I'm so relational that I forget these other things on my checklist. Uh, and, and so Martha and I, we've worked together now for years. And, and she loves me in spite of. And that's what we're being called to, is this idea of, I'm just so committed to you in community and who you are and encouraging the faith and even practicing forgiveness or practicing grace, you know, like strengthening this faith and encouraging it, that I'm going to see the blemishes. In the long run, I'm going to get to conflict with you. And as we increase in intimacy, I'm going to see your brokenness. But that doesn't discount us from being committed to one another. We, we are too much desiring easy intimacy and never achieving it. We need to stop fooling ourselves with how many friends we have, like that social researcher uh, was talking about, and talk about who's actually there. Whose life am I actually invested in your life and you are vested in my life? And we're not just, oh yes, I know you, but I am sharing in life and community with you. Because the ways of God will fully be revealed and the way that we are fashioned will fully come into play when that happens. 
As we move towards this table, I just want to make a couple of encouragements. Um, Like, what do we do with this? Number one, I want to encourage us to make ourselves available to one another. Make ourselves available. My dad died seven and a half years ago. So when we talk about a sordid Father's Day celebration, I mean, I've done seven and a half years of grieving, so some things still hit me sideways. Um, But one of the, in reflecting on grief, one of the things that I miss most about dad is the the availability that fathers have for their kids. And, And it would be the same for moms too. Your parents, if a good, healthy family dynamics, if your parents will make themselves available to you like, like nobody's business. It's just this weird thing. Like, like even on our, our staff culture, um, let's, th- let's think with wives, there's this thing where we could be in the middle of a meeting and if the wife calls for the second time in a row, it's just like, hey guys, got to take this. Because there's a, an availability that is advanced towards those that we are in close community with. And that's just an example of, I want us to more and more say, instead of saying, there's all this busyness and stuff, saying, there's all this busyness and stuff, and when they needed me, I was there. Because my devotion to the community, and they voted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, my devotion to the fellowship and the community superseded all the other busyness and stuff I was doing in life. Because my true mission was in this community to one another. And so I want us, I want to encourage us to prioritize more and make ourselves more available by saying yes to one another and no to the other stuff of the world. Number two, like I just said, learn to live in the tension of intimacy. Um, (laughs) The longer that you do it, the easier it's going to be. It's just plain and simple. I, we went on a vacation a couple of years ago, and I carried around my son um, around the East Coast. And there's not a lot of like really smooth walking trails around the East Coast. And for some reason, we didn't use a carrier. So basically, at the end of this two-week vacation, my right arm was jacked. Like I, at the beginning, it was it was straining. But two weeks in, I'm just carrying him around like a football hold on these cobblestone streets. I lived in the tension long enough where it became something that was easier to do. If our call is to community and to intimacy, and that raises the tension, we need to remain in it long enough, consistent enough, that it's okay. There's no love lost, and I'm getting stronger at this discomfort and being able to remain in it to where it's really not that big of a deal. The last one is to look at Christ as our example. Because if this is all true, if God designed us like this, then we look to the cross for the example and saying, and he did it first. Things like God in Christ through the Spirit made his fellowship available to us. When Jesus Jesus became incarnate, it was God saying, I am restoring my part of the fellowship with you in person, in the flesh. And Jesus on the cross restored our fellowship to him and saying, now by the blood of the Lamb you have fellowship with me. And then he's given us one another as the church to say, and fellowship is restored with one another centered on me and what I've done. So when we look to this table, when we practice what we're coming to, what we're practicing is the reestablishment, the redemption of koinonia that was lost, broken, marred at the fall, that God has said, it is not good that you're alone, and I'm making it so that you have fellowship with me, you have fellowship with one another, and me, my church, making disciples That is the mission to which you are centered around.
Let's pray as we come to this table.